0: The reason I love reading is the same as the reason I love gossip. Flawed characters, human drama, insights into angst and secrets, it's all about eavesdropping on the inner lives of others. So naturally, I've always loved an advice column. The internet is full of self-appointed experts giving ill-conceived advice about things they know nothing about. So to find someone who gets it right is a gift. I like my advice like I like my friends. Sincere, but mean. Or mean, but sincere. So, of course, my favourite advice columnist is Daniel M. Lavery. Danny took over Slate's long-running Dear Prudence column in 2015. Before that, he'd been known for his particular brand of snarky yet wise writing on the beloved site The Toast. And the longer I read the advice Danny gave, the more glimpses I got into Danny as a person. How his own experiences of transitioning, of family estrangement, of falling in love, all informed the ways he talked to those anonymous commenters on the internet. I'm Michael Williams with Read This, a show that is happily gossipy about books. Today, Daniel Lavery on making writing out of other people's confessions and how giving advice equipped him for writing his own memoir. What was your sense of Dear Prudence as a column when you took it over? What were, what were your kind of preconceptions and even kind of concerns about the fit between what you'd been doing before then and the toast and the kind of energy of your voice and your public persona and Dear Prudence?
1: It was certainly something that I loved. So, uh, Before the toast, I had had a series of day jobs that I didn't like, so as you might imagine, I spent the majority of each workday reading various online advice columns and then answering one or two emails every couple of hours. So, I had at that point read, I think, the entire back catalogue of the Dear Prudence archives as well as a few other advice columnists, so it was something that I read uh, just obsessively. This was one of the most um, reliable sources of entertainment throughout some really awful work days. So I felt very excited. It felt a little bit like being asked to be Santa Claus for a while. Just like, you're going to let me do this? That's crazy. I have no training for this. Okay. Okay. When I got the job, I think I might have been 27 or 28, and there's just not a lot of people who want to take advice from a 27-year-old, quite rightly. You know, there were a lot of readers and faithful readers of the column and people who had real ideas about what they wanted from it, as well as this concept of prudence, this idea of at least there's going to be some sort of lip service to ideas about, like, sensibility and restraint. Um, So... I think it was a good few months before I felt like I really struck a good balance between I'm self-conscious about being 27 and voicey, and so I'm going to try to brazen my way through it um, to where I could relax
0: a little bit more and just sort of do my best. Did becoming an advice columnist make you feel like you owed it to readers to share more of yourself? It was, is that one way you prove legitimacy?
1: I think there was a degree of that. Obviously, you never want to be the kind of columnist who begins every single question with a long story about yourself or to just always reroute it back through your own experience. But you do over the course of time. Um, inevitably include details about your own life and particularly about things you yourself have struggled with because you're, you're not giving people advice on things they're already good at so the relevant anecdotes that are going to come up will have to do with you know, relationships that turned out badly, mistakes that you feel that you made. I respect and appreciate that even though it was done anonymously on their end, sharing the basic framing of your life and the problem you're facing is quite vulnerable especially knowing that there's going to be a lot of other readers and commenters kind of Weighing in, and not just about the particular problem facing you, but about your character more generally. And it's a lot of attention, and it's a lot of um, judgment, even if people are on their best behavior, which they aren't always, uh, especially online.
0: Like many writers of his generation, Daniel has lived out most of his twenties and early thirties in the public eye by writing about it on the internet. If you read him early on, as I did, you might feel like you know a little too much about his obsession with Nora Ephron or his brief stint impersonating Joan Didion on YouTube, or his friendship with the writer Nicole Cliff, how they met in the comments section of the hairpin and went on to launch the toast together, how their friendship shifted as Nicole found God and Danny transitioned. I I transitioned
1: during my tenure as Dear Prudent, so there had to eventually be a day when I emailed my boss and said, I got to get new headshots. And then the question was like, when do I, you know, do I wait as long as possible so my headshots look really, really different? Um, When do we decide which week I'm going to go from looking like this to looking like this? Um, And how do we, you know, do we just, you know, uh, toss it out there? Do we we say anything? Um, All those different questions about a, a real change in, Uh, presenting, this is the person you're now getting advice from. Uh, You know,
0: now he's got a bird shirt. (laughs) You capture so beautifully that ambivalence between wanting to be seen and not wanting to be seen through that period that, you know, how furious you are at people who pretend they don't notice or can't talk about it and equally furious with those who like straight to. Oh, yeah. No one could
1: win with me at that stage. It was just like, don't look at me, but give me lots of positive attention, but also stop and leave me alone. I remember uh, when I first started tea, I thought, like, I'm going to—testosterone, I should say. Um, I'm going to try this for a few months just to see if I like it. Um, And, you know, again, really hoping—you know when you're, like, a very little kid and you think if you close your eyes that other people can't see you? That degree of, like, fear and solipsism. So thinking, like, I'm just going to, like— change my like hormones and see if anybody know. like hopefully no one will notice and I could just figure it out in a vacuum and like of course within three weeks my mother and I were like getting lunch and she said, you've been breaking out on your neck a lot lately, did you start <laughs> testosterone without telling me? Which was the most like laser focused like maternal surveillance and feeling like an inadequate daughter and also feeling like a surveilled son in the same moment was like, oh this is really, I don't like this but this is a beautiful moment, you've really done something here as <laughs> a disapproving parent, and I have to respect it.
0: Throughout Daniel's time as the voice of dear Prudence, he encountered the spectrum of human emotions and grievances, people at their most heartbreaking, but also at their worst. Some of his earlier responses are charged with youthful sarcasm, and I couldn't resist asking him to read a question he was asked and how he responded. Dear Prudence,
1: I take a couple of trips a year with friends or for work in which there are ample opportunities to cheat. In the past, I have taken advantage of this and so have many of my closest friends, both female and male. When I am home, I am as dedicated a partner and parent as anyone else I know. I do at least 50% of the housework and childcare. The same can largely be said for my friends, who also don't seem to have a moral problem with straying from their otherwise monogamous partnerships on rare occasions. I'm happily married and very satisfied with my partner emotionally, intellectually, and sexually, but I can't pretend that that makes the thrill of the new irrelevant. I'm fairly confident that many, if not all, of us are hardwired for this, but obviously this seems to run against the grain in our society, at least on the surface. I wonder if we are living in a very Victorian-esque time in which these basic and not intrinsically unhealthy desires are shunned because of past principle, or if I, and a large percentage of those I know, should be classified as sociopaths. The easy answer here is that the only thing I'm doing wrong is being dishonest with my partner. But why hurt someone with this truth if it makes no difference to anyone as long as I'm careful to keep it concealed? If I found out that my partner had been doing the same thing, I would not be angry or hurt. But I know that she does not feel the same. Is something wrong with me slash us? And it's signed, don't feel bad. And here was my reply. No, I totally get it. Human beings are evolutionarily hardwired to furtively cheat on their partners three to four times a year on business trips. It's part of our brain chemistry. You happen to have evolved a little further than most of us onto a super enlightened plane where you get to make decisions for your partner without her input or consent, and you're just like protecting her from something that would hurt her if she knew, which is pretty brave if you think about it. You're basically her hero, shielding her from things that would only hurt her because she doesn't get it yet. Also, when you are not on business trips, you don't cheat on her. The majority of the time, you are not cheating at all, plus you do laundry. If that doesn't earn you something on the side, I don't know what does. I'm not going to classify you as a sociopath. You seem to want me to either absolve you entirely or call you a bad person, and I have no interest in doing either. But you know as well as I do that you're making selfish, gutless, easy choices. You have no interest in monogamy, and that's absolutely fine. Just don't pretend you've ascended to a higher plane of existence because of it. You've decided that since you're able to see through the fiction of exclusivity, you can act without taking your partner's feelings and desires into account. If you truly believed in the superiority of an open relationship, you would talk to her about it. You wouldn't treat her like a child who hasn't earned the right to be initiated into your secret knowledge because she's too conventional to get it. It doesn't matter if you wouldn't mind if it turned out she had cheated on you. You admit that you know it would cause her pain if she found out. She deserves not to be lied to. Whether you choose polyamory or an open marriage or flexible monogamy isn't the point. Whatever you decide, you have to come by it honestly.
0: The letter embodies a particular kind of self-righteous self-delusion that um, is so Frustrating to read and hear, and so ubiquitous. Was it ubiquitous from later writers? Did you often find people who wanted to present themselves as evolved?
1: I, you know, I mean, I think what it is is very, very few people want to do something they believe is wrong, and so that means that most of us, when we do something that we suspect might be wrong or that other people might think are wrong. Um, We do a lot of digging to try to find a a way of justifying it and I do this and I mean one of the things that I was struck by uh, reading my own response was uh, I I was like oh man I like really got on my high horse with that guy and um, if I were doing it again now I would be I would be on a shorter horse for sure. Uh, So much of what the letter writer says I have no objection to which is like I love my partner I find uh, sex with new people thrilling and novel in a way that doesn't detract from my love for my partner. All of that I could, I could really sign off on. I could really understand and appreciate. None of that feels like, wow, that's really fucked up. But the, the desire to go from the way that I feel or the things that I want are understandable to – and therefore the decision I've made to lie to my partner because I've decided it doesn't really affect her – is that justifiable? Is that good? Is that straightforward? And, and that's where it all obviously falls apart. And I think the letter writer knows that on some level. is just, of course it doesn't work like that. Of course you can't decide for another human being that they shouldn't care about something that you know they care about. And the reason that you are writing this sort of like tortured series of uh, like syllogisms to me is because you don't feel good about what you're doing. It's
0: also, it must be a strange thing to have a sense that people are coming to you for absolution. You know, I've already decided what I do or I already have a a belief or an understanding of, you know, who I am in the world. Right, this wasn't,
1: should I cheat on my wife or even should I keep cheating on my wife? This was, I cheat on my wife all the time. Here's the 12 reasons. I think it's a really great idea. Uh, Do you think me and everyone I know is a sociopath? You know, come on, be honest. We can't all be sociopaths. Give me the answer I want so I can get out of here.
0: Really, people want you to reply, go in peace, your sins are forgiven.
1: I think a, a big factor in something that people look for in advice columnists is, am I all right? Am I on the right path? Is it okay that I feel this way or have done something? Um, and I, that makes sense to me. I like getting absolution from people too, and getting it from a stranger seems like as good a way of getting it as any. Almost the better way. People who know you are less likely to give absolution. Absolutely. And this way you get the absolution, but nobody who knows you has you know information that could potentially give them power over you. So you get to
0: keep all your you know strength. When Danny started giving advice, he was, in his own words, a self-conscious and brazen and voicey 27-year-old. But in more than six years as an agony aunt, his advice giving changed. I asked him whether reading all those letters made him cynical about people, but to my surprise he said it was the opposite. As he'd grown older, gotten married to his wife Grace, experienced more of life, he found his sense of compassion grew, even towards the more bonkers questions he received, like this one. Dear Prudence, this is a totally hypothetical question that a friend
1: asked me and which is now leading to a fight. My friend asked if I would ever be a living organ donor to a stranger. I said I wouldn't. My friend then asked if I would donate to somebody I knew slightly, like an acquaintance or a coworker. Again, I said no. My friend then asked if I would donate to a good friend. Parentheses, we were good friends. I said no. This is where my friend got mad. My friend is in perfect health and does not need a kidney or any other organ. My friend asked why I would be so selfish. I said that working in the medical field, I know that there are no guarantees. You can die or have complications from any kind of surgery, and donating a kidney is major surgery. Plus, I'd be out of work for a while. I have a host of relatives I would want to be able to donate to if I had to, including my spouse, siblings, nieces, nephews, cousins, etc., for some bizarre reason, this has caused a huge rift in what was a good friendship. Do you think it is selfish to not want to be a living donor to anybody but a relation?
0: And it was signed, don't want to donate. Talk me through how you approached advice giving in that case.
1: I've absolutely in my life asked loaded hypothetical <laughs> questions of people. When I was really trying to like get at something that I couldn't quite articulate, I used to constantly ask partners if I uh, – do you remember the um, – uh, gosh, what was that Tom Hanks – Castaway, Away, yeah. that movie. One of the things that had already always really bothered me about that movie is I think Tom Hanks is like cast away for four and a half years. But then when he comes back, his former fiance Helen Hunt, is now married with – at the time, I was pretty young, but I thought that kid looked at least like three. And I just kept mentally doing the math and thinking they were engaged when his plane disappeared and now she's got like a 12-year-old kid. <laughs> And I felt like she had clearly moved on too quickly. In retrospect, it could have been a very young baby and she might have given him a good two or three years of waiting. But so I would always ask new partners if I, you know, my plane goes down over the ocean somewhere, probably I've died, but there's maybe a five to 2% chance that I survived on an island somewhere and I might get picked up. How long are you waiting for me? Um, and, like, of course, this had to do with just various uh, questions and fears about, like, do I matter to other people? Uh, you know, do I matter in a way that if it involved, like, waiting or postponing something that people would be willing to wait for me? And my now wife, Grace, she, you know, obviously kind of uh, didn't love the question itself. It was like, I don't, not not long. Like, <laughs> not long. Not six months. Like, if you're gone, I will miss you for the rest of my life, but I'm not going to wall myself up in a tower. And it was great because we really got to, like, talk through, what like, why, why was I always asking people I dated that question? And so I feel, uh, thinking back, like, there's something going on with that friend. I don't think it's actually that the friend is secretly quite ill and is testing everybody. But there's some fear there of, like, do I really matter to people? Um, are all my friends coupling off and, like, entering into nuclear families and going to leave me behind? If I were to guess, I would. I would I would not be surprised if maybe a lot of that person's friends were getting married and they were starting to fear that they were never going to be anyone else's first priority, um, which is a very long way of trying to answer your question.
0: No, no, I I love it. I mean, it's part of what I love about that is that Grace gave you the wrong answer to the question in terms of (laughs) what— you were seeking.
1: Well, yeah, and kind of reminding me too and uh, like the thing that I really wanted everyone to say, including like all of my exes was never I would dedicate my life to like g- joining a convent or or a monastery that was set up in memory of you. And that's just all I would do. I would like wander the earth as a mendicant and I'd never wear shoes and I would just tell people I once had a lover named Danny. That's what I wanted. But even that wouldn't be satisfying enough. Like, you wanted a
0: full Eliza Hamilton, it, an orphanage. Just
1: like <laughs> demonic levels of control over people even after I've died. And I think quite rightly, Grace, you know, was like, I, I love you and I'm so happy in our relationship. And if you died, I would not ever like go a day without missing you. But I also wouldn't commit myself to... Um, you know, passing out of the world of living and and into just like perpetually uh, putting off joy, pleasure, connection with other people.
0: Coming up after the break, Danny's writing becomes even more confessional at great personal cost.
1: As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top 5 news stories of the day, summarizing each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at the saturdaypaper.com.au/newsletters. As a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top 5 news stories of the day summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters.
0: Welcome back. Before we keep going, I wanted to give you the heads up that the conversation's about to take a turn into some territory that will be challenging or even distressing for some listeners. It concerns child endangerment. Take care while listening or skip this part if you're not feeling up to it. If you haven't read Daniel Lavery before, his memoir, Something That May Shock and Discredit You, beautifully captures his strengths as a writer. There's sharp, at times, very funny commentary on pop culture, excoriating honesty, and reflections on philosophy, religion, and family estrangement. It runs a pretty wide gamut. In 2020, Danny was putting the final touches on the memoir when he went public with some shocking news about his family. On Twitter, he wrote... In November of last year, I reported to the elders of Menlo Church that their senior pastor, John Ortberg, had conspired in secret to provide a person experiencing compulsive sexual feelings towards children with unsupervised access to young people through youth groups. In a long thread, Danny revealed that the year before, his brother had admitted sexual feelings towards children and that his father, a pastor at the church they were both members of, had covered this up, and allowed him to continue working with children. Danny wrote that he tried to ensure a thorough investigation of this through the church's channels, but that it had failed. He wrote, I make this public in the absence of institutional accountability so that members of the community can create a democratic, transparent process for investigating this volunteer's history of unsupervised visits to, trips with, and work involving children. I hope that my brother is safe, healthy, in treatment, and never alone with another child. I hope that his previous work with children, at Menlo Church and everywhere else he pursued such work, is thoroughly scrutinised. Daniel was used to sharing his life with the public on his own terms, but this level of disclosure was something new. It was no longer a matter of what he felt comfortable revealing about himself, but what he couldn't in good conscience stay quiet about. He found himself rewriting his book in the final months before it was due to come out. I had planned to write in something that may shock
1: and discredit you a book with a certain degree of vulnerability and honesty about my relationship with my family, Um, but that would not have gone anywhere near that level of uh, honesty or openness had it not been forced. That's a level of intensity, Uh, it's a level of... uh, You know, intimacy, vulnerability that I would not have chosen to put in the book proposal when I first sold it. Um, But simply because so much of this was a matter of public record, it was just, um, it was already out there. Uh, And so again, it's not... Uh, neither of these books are primarily about that, but they do both go into some detail about what that experience was like, just because uh, I, I couldn't imagine how I would not write about it. There would be a huge hole in both books if I couldn't address it at all, um, and especially in, I think, the the Dear Prudence book, since I would often get questions from letter writers who were either considering estrangement with their own families or who similarly were dealing with the fallout of... Um, uh protecting pedophiles within the family or uh dealing with the fallout of child sexual abuse in the family um it 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 felt like an actual uh useful uh bit of uh shared disclosure of uh, it's It's pretty common, uh, and I know I know what this might look like, or I, I know how difficult it can be to uh, uh, prompt that sort of estrangement and here's what has worked for me or here's um, at least some sense of it's possible. you can do it, and it can in many ways improve your own life.
0: Thanks for sharing that and it, it's such a, a kind of devastating and acute example of that question about disclosure and who owns disclosure and who has responsibility for disclosure mm-hmm. and those fault lines are, are so hard and I think you navigate them so well and mm-hmm. are, are, have such admiration and respect for the, the way you do that.
1: It'd be really funny though, I I don't know why, but just the thought occurred to me, if someone did it really badly and you just felt both like really sorry for them, but also like, man, you write about your family's pedophilia terribly. You just, (laughs) you did the right thing, but you wrote about it like shit.
0: Your prose is awful. You're
1: self-pitying and maudlin
0: and you miss the forest for the trees and it's a real shame. To be completely clear, the book is not an abuse memoir. Despite his estrangement from his family and his rejection of the faith he grew up with, Daniel writes about his childhood and his father's influence on him in ways that are surprising and frequently funny.
1: I I do get a lot of my love of pastiche and my relationship to, like, male ebullience from my father. And certainly for the first few years after my uh, estrangement from my family, I felt, uh, you know, a level of resentment, anger, rage... That felt like I couldn't even to myself admit, like, if they ate breakfast, it was a good, you know, it was like, and the way they ate breakfast was fucked up. And their relationship to shoes was bad. Like, I could not even sort of psychically acknowledge they'd ever done anything good. Um, and, And so I think one of the things that's been really useful, again, not in the sense of, boy, I hope someday we all get to sit down for supper. I don't. I'm glad we don't have a relationship. I don't want to speak to them again. Um, the best thing that I could imagine ever happening would be they live lives of deep repentance and make amends. Um, and we don't speak about it because we would continue not to speak. Um, but I am able now to have a more relaxed attitude towards it's all right that I inherited some things from them or that they shaped the way that I became a person. That's not something that I have to um, deny or resist or, or feel anxiety over. And so that's something that's... Uh, really just a a good thing kind of a few years out from estrangement to to realize it doesn't feel as
0: um, fragile as it did. Do you think elements of that religious upbringing made you an advice giver?
1: a really lovely question. I don't think I've been asked that before. Um, I, I, I liked the way I was able to write about uh, religious texts and religious stories in that book. Um, I think at other times during my you know young adulthood, it might have been more fraught or more difficult, or I would have felt a stronger need to stake a bunch of claims. Um, whereas by the time I was in my 30s, and you know it had been a long time since I had had to go to church. Um, I felt a real lightness about it that comes from not having had to go to church for a really long time, which is terrific. I love not going to church, but I still like thinking about, uh, you know, the stories of, of my youth and, and the, the stories that informed a lot of the, the way that I came to be a thinking person. Um, and so I, I do think that a, a lot of... Uh, the way that I think about, like, what is a good way to live and what is a good way to treat other people and what is a good way to handle grievances and resentments um, is informed by, I, I think, especially, like, religious writers. I think especially, um, you know, reading, like, The Pilgrim's Progress or Kierkegaard at a young age or, you know, like the, the young adult classics uh, condensed version of Kierkegaard that's just like, this is the night of infinite faith. Um it's not infinite faith. It's infinite resignation and faith. I'm mushing them together. Um, but yeah, I think that did inform it. And I, that doesn't mean that I, I am myself like an explicitly religious person uh, or that I think of myself as like living in opposition to uh, explicit religion so much as just um, there's, there's a lot of
0: there there. While Daniel hadn't planned to share so much of what happened with his family— Now that he has, he sees the value in the letters he gets from people asking for guidance going through family turmoil of their own and for what it means for how he experiences the stages of estrangement. The recognition that how it felt at the start isn't how it feels now and how it feels now will change too.
1: I remember reading something now I can't Tell you who said it or in what context, but somebody was saying they feel that a lot of writing about grief um, usually comes from someone who's sort of in the acute stages. um, And uh, thinking about this in terms of I've sort of just moved from like being a freshman at estrangement to maybe being like a sophomore and thinking about like how I might think about it in another 10 years or 20. Um, and that thought was really interesting to me, the idea of it developing um, longevity and context and, and uh, history and an archive. That, that strikes me as really interesting, and as I think of my own estrangement as something that was both incredibly painful and incredibly necessary, and the source of a lot of real goodness, the idea of what might it look like in 20 years feels in some ways really like exciting and energizing, um, because its it was the beginning of a new type of uh, relating towards the world and relating towards the idea of family. and so. It's kind of interesting to have a sort of like hopeful and optimistic idea of the future that does not rest upon uh, interpersonal
0: reconciliation. How much does kind of the level of emotional articulacy that you have, how much is that something you hide behind? I don't necessarily think being able to speak about something
1: uh, confidently or carefully means you are using it as a sort of defense mechanism or to avoid feeling real feelings. Um, I think I've been able to, uh, talk about and be pretty messy about it as well. You know, I was in therapy about three times a week for the first two years. And, um, I would often just go to the grocery store and walk around and cry and get really mad and flinch whenever I heard a sound louder than a whisper. And so, you know, there's been plenty of ways in which it's been, uh, not just like, oh, and then I thought carefully about it and I moved on with the next phase of my life. And then I wrote another book and then I felt terrific. Um, but it's also, I think... I think it's also really useful to talk about uh, and engage with like healing and the idea that you can genuinely get better. Um, I, I feel like it's often easier to kind of uh, default to talking about like trauma or pain or uh, grief or loss in ways that can, at least for me, it's really easy to go and like, I can't believe this bad thing happened to me. Um, the, the birthday boy and the hero of reality, um, as opposed to, well, bad things happen to everyone. You know, the, the best life in the world ends in death and that's true for everyone and, and taking that really seriously and thinking about what does it mean to experience loss and not think of that as like the most shocking, disruptive thing that could ever happen to you, but a part of life and something that you can both, you know, mourn and also turn to account and use it to be more useful to other people and that the idea is to get better. For me, the biggest shift was when I was finally willing to stop saying, like, what I need is to be so angry at my family that that's my primary emotional mode, and I fall asleep every night, you know, thinking about uh, enacting some sort of, like, horrible vengeance um, and eventually getting to a place of what would it look like to start to put some of that down.
0: That stuff can be so corrosive, Mm -hmm. and I think uh, the way in which you use both your platform but also what you read language, communicating with others with such integrity is, um, yeah, it's yeah. kind of awe-inspiring.
1: Oh, thank you. You know, it feels, frankly, like it feels connected back to that same part of me that asks partners, if my plane went missing over the Pacific, would you wait forever, is a little bit like, um, why can't I follow my father around with a bell for the rest of his life, like naming his crimes, ringing a bell telling everyone to like throw garbage at him because there's that same unquenchable appetite for control over somebody else. Like I could do that forever and that wouldn't be enough. And if that's the case, then I've got to look elsewhere for any sort of ability to find like peace or uh, the ability to live among other people. Like I can't I can't live my life that way. If that wouldn't be satisfying, I've got to find something else. Uh, although there's still a part of me that's like, but put me in, coach. Let's try it. Let's get me that bell. Let's <laughs> like, follow him around.
0: If I know anything about that kind of bell ringing, the repetitive strain injury is terrible. I so. get carpal
1: tunnels so bad, which I live in fear of because I do so much typing because all I do is blog.
0: Bell ringing is not the answer for you. That's not the right uh, physio.
1: Unless we could like tape a lot of bells <laughs> to my arms. So, but then that, the problem there is I would sound like a jester and it can't be funny when I'm ringing the bell.
0: Daniel, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much. This has been delightful. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes.
0: Before we go, I wanted to tell you what I've been reading this week. I loved Peter Polite's first two novels, but with this third one, God forgets about the poor, he has absolutely gone to the next level. He's a writer from Western Sydney who tackles class and sexuality in an original, sometimes even poetic way. This new book is inspired by and about his mum, and it's fantastic. And as editor of the Monthly, I regularly find myself wishing John Clark was still around to write absurd, cheeky, cutting satire about our stupid political world. There was nobody quite like him. A new memoir by his daughter Lauren underlines that loss, but looks at it through the lens of his private, personal self. The book made me cry more than once. It captures the inside jokes and the tenderness between this family. It's called Would That Be Funny? Growing Up With John Clark. You can find these books and all the others we've talked about today at your favourite local independent bookstore. Or if you want to listen to an audiobook, you can head to the Read This Reading Room on Apple Books at apple.co slash readthis. It's regularly updated with all the books we talk about every week. That's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend who loves to read. This episode was produced by Clara Ames and edited by Sarah McVee. Original compositions by Zoltan Fetcho and mixing by Travis Evans. Thanks for listening. See you next week.